So how do you achieve financial freedom, gain wealth, and live life on your terms? That is the question, and here is the answer. I'm A.G. Osborne. Welcome to Cash Flow to Freedom. Welcome, everybody, to Cash Flow to Freedom. Today is an absolute treat. I met James. It was, geez, a while back ago now in Hawaii, and we were at a mastermind together, and I was absolutely blown away by what he's done, what he's got going on. If you are trying to get into housing, if you're looking at investments, I mean, he is he's absolutely killing it. This is one that you need to hear. You guys are going to dive into this. This is beyond a wealth of knowledge and information. I am so pleased to have him on. With that, James, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, I'm excited to be on. It was, uh, we, we had a good time over in Maui, so a lot of good people there. A lot of good people. It was actually, I don't know if you knew that, that was the first like mastermind or kind of a, a networking kind of event that um, I'd ever been to. So <laughs> it was a good one. No, I think, you to start with me. I was, uh, the, the first day was a little like, what, what are we doing here? We're splitting off into these groups and talking about whatever. And uh, yeah, that was definitely my first time too. Uh, it took me like a day to warm up on it. I was like, I was a little confused on what was going on. <laughs> me too. I was like, what am I supposed to be doing here? And, uh, um, but it, I think a lot of us had that kind of same thing going on, but it, it worked out really, really well. And I was so intrigued by what you're doing because you're based out of Seattle, kind of, right? Yeah. All my business is in Seattle, uh, King's Snohomish and Pierce County, uh, the Tri-Counties in uh, Washington. Uh, I live right now part-time in Newport, and I travel back and forth now. So, actually, I've moved to Newport. Uh, right before we met at the Mastermind, I made the move, and now I'm, I'm on a, a remote schedule with my team, and I, I fly back and forth now uh, three weeks a month. That's awesome. And I guess here, before we get going, going too far, why don't you take us back? How did you get started in real estate? And then talk to us about how you built this, you know, frankly, a juggernaut. I mean, you guys are pulling out tons of deals You've got so much going on. How how did you get there? I mean, w- did you start out wanting to be in real estate? It all started in steps with me. Randomly, so I was a senior in college. Um, I was working at a restaurant, uh, just trying to get college done. Like, I, you know, I wasn't one of those people who went to college for the experience. I went to get my certificate and I wanted to move on. And uh, so my last year, I was like, okay, I need to practice sales. Actually, I, you know, I had always been interested in real estate and it's been, you know, kind of, uh, it's been in my family at least for a long time. But I, I wanted to get more sales training than anything else. And my business partner, or my now business partner, uh, or my roommate at the time, he started working for a, a foreclosure auction company. And he was out knocking on people's doors, just talking to them, t- seeing if they needed to sell to this investment company. And I randomly, when I saw him get that job, I was like, oh, I should do that just for practice. Because nothing's better than learning sales than getting doors slammed in your face. Mm-hmm. And so I started in this business just kind of knocking doors and wholesaling contracts. And, uh, you know, within the, the first nine months, I made zero money. Uh, actually, I probably lost money on gas. And, you know, it was actually a very unenjoyable job for me. But I saw this overwhelming potential in real estate because I was seeing these people buy properties, uh, build long-term wealth, flip these homes and make cash. And there were so many different multi-levels that you can actually build income and long-term wealth in that I got very, very interested in it. And so, you know, really my jumping off point was, you know, one of the things was uh, I'm knocking doors. I wasn't successful because I I had no one had trained me. And so I trained myself right up on everything about foreclosures and, you know, I started building, actually getting good at it and went from doing one to two deals a month to eight deals a month. And it just kind of started graduating from there. So, but in real estate, it always started with one concept and kind of grew off itself. So that's how I went from wholesaling contracts to buying properties and keeping them for buying holds and then flipping, but it, it just kind of started taking root from there. Okay. And now you mentioned your partner earlier on, were you guys selling together? You were following his path. When did you break off? When did you decide, listen, I'm going to go do my own thing? We ran a very successful uh, sales department for a foreclosure company in Seattle. They do auction purchasing. We actually broke off from them because uh, they had switched. They went to a franchise model, and they wanted us to start selling franchises rather than real estate. And 
uh, that just wasn't my passion. By then, I had kind of got my foot in the door. I started flipping some condos myself. I'd started buying my own property. I was wholesaling a lot of deals. And, you know, it wasn't about sales anymore. I genuinely got a passion behind real estate and just kind of, you know, I had my own path that I had started to kind of envision for myself. So me and my partner, actually, we broke off from that company. It was all good terms. We did it the right way. And we opened our doors the same month that subprime mortgages went away. So it was, it was not a good time to be starting a real estate company. It was like we, we opened up shop and we had to do it so thrifty too, because it was, you know, times were tough. You couldn't get any loans. Leasing was tough. We literally had 12 sales guys and 400 square feet. And we just ran lean from there on out uh, for the next two to three years. But I think I'm very fortunate that I started that company in that month because I do remember that like soon as subprimes went away, everybody jumped out of the market. It was like a ghost town. Like you could have a you could have a property for a dollar and be like, hey, investor, do you want to buy this? It's only one dollar. And they'd be like, no, I don't want nothing to do with this. And so what we had to kind of do was adapt. And and that's the biggest thing in real estate for me is I have to adapt to each market that's given to me. It's not the same business model that I need to duplicate and just keep doing that model. I have to change my model every one to two years because no matter if the market's good or bad, it's still changing and you gotta, you gotta adapt all your, what your return expectations are, how aggressive you're going to be, what kind of financing you're going to get. And during that downturn, we adapted because we went from wholesalers to, we became the kind of more principal investors where we got a good lender behind us. And we started flipping a lot of properties ourselves. And we kind of became the guys that sold off market deals and were flippers that, that where we could, we could flip houses in a market that you weren't supposed to be flipping houses in. So you went from out there actually trying to get and sell the properties to investors, correct? So you're trying to find foreclosures, things like that. And then normally you were selling those properties to investors who were then flipping it. So you kind of, from there, you kind of merged in and you started to be uh, the investor and you were starting to flip the properties. Were you holding any of those that you were flipping or were you just trying to generate capital at the time? Uh, we were doing both. And I think okay. that's very important for all investing is, is you kind of have to balance yourself out. And during that time, you know, there was properties that we, you know, if, if we could identify them as a flip, it was good product with a little bit less inventory in the market. And it was more of a high demand. Yeah. Well, there wasn't a high demand for anything back then, but there are always sales getting done in no matter what kind of market people are relocating, you know, people can buy for cheaper than rent. Uh, you know, the, especially back then it was kind of like the people out there buying homes were the people that waited out the crazy market in 2008. And so we'd always try to identify the flip, but we picked up, you know, where we really got to expedite our wealth was, you know, we were purchasing properties. We, we, the ones we were keeping as buy and hold, it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to buy this because we can cash flow it. It was, we're going to buy it and cash flow it, but also what's the long-term, what's the long-term upside in this property? Whether it was zoning, whether it was on a large lot with that, you know, we could chop up into four or five lots when the market improved. And so we really had that you know, that was our core concept was, Hey, as we're, you know, it was hard to get bank financing. So when you did use your bank financing, you wanted to make sure you used it on the right property. And the properties we picked up in 2000 and it was 2010 to 2014, those were by far the cream of the crop where we were buying. I mean, there was one house. I remember we picked it up on a wholesale contract. We picked it up for 35 grand off market. We gave it to our clients for 55,000 that they could buy it for. And not one person would buy this property. Like I, I probably showed it to 30 investors. You know, what we, we figured out was, Hey, well, we can buy this. We can keep it as a rental, you know, rents at the time were like 900 bucks. You know, we put this massive amount of money into it. We refinanced all our cash back. You know, we bought it for 50. We put about 75 into it. We refinanced it into one loan. We got all our money back, but we were also sitting on 11 different lots in that same property right now. And this is in another, it's like kind of a sub sub, zone of Seattle to where we actually think it's going to be the most valuable in 10 years, not in this development cycle. But even in today's market, it's worth over 900 grand because the the property, the, the size, the lot, and the rents have gone up from 900 to 1850. So now we cash flow over a grand a month on this property. We have no cash in and it, we have over, you know, 900% equity in it. 
And so those are the properties that, that that's how you, you create, in my opinion, you, you create wealth and buy and hold. It, it's all about that buy and what's the upside in that property. Cash flow is great, but cash flow can also get beat up by deferred maintenance, tenant turnover, just things in general can yes. reduce your cash flow. Mm-hmm. But where you create wealth is do you have that end product for, you know, down the road or where's your upside? And luckily we picked up about 12 to 13 of those properties. And then as the market improved, we started selling them off in 1031-ing them into some, some substantial assets and increasing our unit count. So by buying right and getting the right equity position, we were able to hyper explode our portfolio. You know, we went from having 11 doors to 250 doors by buying the right properties, 1031 exchanging, utilizing our equity and then increasing our cash flow. And now, you know what, we went from owning a bunch of properties scattered throughout the tri-counties to where our main location now is in King County, core neighborhoods, Ballard, Queen Anne, Ravenna. And and we have some very good long-term tangible assets that is really what you retire on in your wealth, not the income. I love that process and that point that you make on cash flow. And, and I couldn't agree more that, you know, just because a property cash flows on paper, especially doesn't always mean that it's a good deal. You have little things in, in large properties that can just blow that up for years. CapEx can just absolutely erode any real cash flow earnings out of it. And so then are you getting upside in the equity? Is there something that you can do with it? Because if not, if you look at your five, 10 year cash flow returns, you may be actually really disappointed with it. And two, I like, for at least for me, you know, I like cash flow to pay for the assets that are creating the wealth that I can then replicate through a 1031 exchange or refi out, mm-hmm. you know, and put that into another one and move up. You mentioned you had all these sales guys. So you, you kind of built an engine here that you were seeing the deals. So you could actually find the best deals and just keep them for yourself too. You know, it's funny. All, everybody comes into our office. So, you know, how it worked is it's always been stepping stones for me. You know, we had an off-market company wholesaling contracts. And then it was like, well, how do we, how do we maximize that deal? Well, A, we created a, I became licensed, became a broker, and then, you know, started listing the property. So we kind of double up the deal. You know, we got our, our purchased commission and then our resale commission. But as we bring clients in, we would teach them how to buy these fix and flips and buy and holds. But everyone always thought that we were the ones that would cherry pick the deal and then we give what's left over to our clients. It's actually the opposite. We end up buying the ones that most of our clients don't want to buy because usually the plans, there's a lot of upside in these deals, but the plans are very complex in nature. You know, where I've done the best in all of real estate isn't just the purchase. Like I can find a good deal, but how do I execute on that deal? And what kind of plan can I put together to maximize out the profits on that? Typically that requires a complex construction schedule and a very not easy. You have to, it's a lot of manpower, a lot of oversight, but that's actually how we created the most amount of wealth that way. So typically we buy the deals that no one wants because they're just too hairy, but there's so much upside in them that it's worth the extra effort for us. Yeah. Like we you have you know, the most effort, of our, the our, knowledge, the everything else to make it happen where say some doctor comes in and they're like, that is so far beyond my scope. It would actually be bad for them to even try to approach it. So you can't get those off. So those are the ones that you end up not being able to get investors into. Yeah, because it's all based on the plan. You know, like, I mean, I, I bought lots of properties where we sent out to our clients and people were like, we don't like this deal. It's, the, the margin's not that good or it's not that good of a deal. But it's really how you slice and dice up the investment is really how you make your money. And whether it's creating additional units or whether it's purchasing a bulk package that may be, you know, mediocre cap rate, but how can you leverage it correctly, sell off certain uh, percentages of it and really maximize it out. But yes, we, I mean, it always comes from where do you get the deal and that, you know, it, whether it's an engine, we have an engine for off market. Uh, I buy a lot of deals on market because again, it's about finding how you slice and dice it up. Not that it's just on market or off market. Actually, I would say 60% of the, the purchases that we've bought in have been right off the Northwest MLS or SIBA. Wow. Um, wow. That's sitting, surprising. It, yeah, and it, especially the last two years, because there's been a very big misconception and a mistake, I think, by the investment community is people want off-market, but off-market doesn't mean that it's a better deal. 
you know, and we, we try to source as much off market properties as we can. You know, I, I, I'm also a partner in an off market company that, that that's what they do. It's a direct sale to homeowners that don't want to list their properties. But if it's listed and it's not getting action, you're working with another professional and a seller that wants to sell their property and you can work the terms that you need to get the deal done. And so, you know, I would rather work through a professional half the time rather than just a homeowner who's looking at Zillow or read some article that their property's worth a ton of money and, you know, really get a, you know, because A, the market will tell that, that homeowner that their, their idea of what their property worth wasn't what it's worth. And so the market kind of gives them a little punch right there. And then you're working with a professional. As long as they hired the right broker, they're trying to get the deal done and, and they can kind of educate their seller a little bit more. So I typically will get a better deal on market than off market half the time or okay, most of the time. We're seeing, we're seeing those exact same things happen right now. It's a perfect, you know, we go and we talk to people and they'll even approach us like, Hey, we'd like you to acquire our facility or whatever we're looking at. And we're like, Hey, that's awesome. You know, let's, uh, let's talk about it. The problem is, is they, they're like, yeah, well, we saw in Southern California that um, storage facilities are selling for four caps. So that's what we want. And we're like, you realize you have live in a population of 20,000 out in the middle of nowhere, right? And you're like, and they, they're misguided. In fact, lots of times they're going yeah. off market because they don't like what realtors are telling them. And so they're saying, why yeah, don't I go find somebody that'll pay this for it? As where where the realtor goes through all the the pain in getting them to understand what the true value of the property at its current state is, and ha- when the market's up like it is now, people have totally unrealistic expectations of what they're going to get out of that asset, and it makes those conversations very difficult. And then too, I'm also dealing with the emotional seller, as opposed to a, yep. a realtor who's like, listen. These are the numbers. If you don't think it's worth that, why not? And we have that conversation. And you're right. All our deals are off market. But two, a misconception is off market deals doesn't mean that it doesn't come from a realtor. So like we have realtors that will go out and source our deals, price them, but they never take it to anybody else except us. We're the only people that will Mm -hmm. ever see that deal ever. And for us, that becomes our best of both worlds. Because he's putting it together, he's sourcing it, he knows what we want, he's bringing it to us. You know, lots of times it's a person in your position, which is we buy probably 60% of our deals. They're going through the work, they're working with the sellers, they're getting all that stuff done. They bring it to us in a, in a form that we want, right? And because they know we'll pull the trigger, we buy it, we bring it on, it never goes out, so we don't get the pressure of lots of people coming in and raising the prices. But two, I'm not working with an irrational seller who at the top of this market thinks their property is basically made of gold. Yeah, and it, I talked to a lot of wholesalers about that too. Cause, you know, they'll bring me a deal and they're like, oh, here, here's this property and my fee is always 15000 and And I'm like, well, your fee can't always be 15000 unless you're always hitting the same exact return. Investors buy based on numbers, right? Like I buy, if it's a, if it's a fix and flip property, I got to be at 15% ROI on a six-month basis, well, not factoring leveraging. That's my number. If it's uh, an apartment building in Seattle, I might want a six to seven cap, if not better. If it's in Pierce County, I might want an eight to 10 cap. That's, you know, I have my, my sections and numbers and, you know, what's happened in the off market side of the business because there was so much upside in the market just because it was naturally correcting itself that they were getting paid on upside. Whereas, you know, luckily, and I like this market, like where the market starts to cool down and gets more normal you can get better deals now because now it's getting rid of half the amount of competition out there. People throwing out crazy numbers. Sellers can kind of see that people aren't just going to throw out crazy numbers at them. And you can kind of get back into a playing field to where you can actually invest in real estate again, rather than just buy whatever you can get your hands on. But having the right teams to find that, I mean, that's what it all comes down to. Whether it's an off-market group that will go source whatever you're looking for, whether it's a broker, you know, if you're working with a broker, don't work with a mom and pop's broker. There's nothing wrong with a, you know, a retail broker that goes out and shows homes and does open houses. But as a broker myself, I don't do any of that. I don't do open houses. I don't do listing. In, like my job as a broker is to slice and dice investments and get, get the investment to that client. 
So make sure you're working with the right teams too, because you don't want to waste your time and waste your dollars working with a broker that doesn't really know how to analyze the deal. You know, if someone called me to say, Hey, I want to go look at 20 homes to go move into, that's not my specialty. So I outsource that out. I refer that out because I would be doing them a disservice because I don't get that side. Like I know how to look at a house and whether it's a nice house or not, but that's not where my best time is spent. So I'm always going to outsource that out. And that's where actually a lot of brokers refer me and clients because they want to just get their client taken care of. But making sure you work with the right team, it will save you 75% of your wasted time at that point. Now, walk me through your organization because this really intrigues me. You, you got a lot of things going on, right? And that's why I'm so grateful that you came on our show, you're, you're talking with our listeners, because you see the real estate world in a way that so many don't, don't see. You're, I mean, you've got your fix and flips, you've got your value add, you've got your cash flow, you're parceling out, you're putting individuals in and sourcing deals and creating wealth for others. I mean, you're really seeing, there's few people that I know that see the whole spectrum almost of particularly in multifamily, single-family housing, that you're seeing all of this. You're seeing you're dealing with the wholesalers. You're dealing with with everybody. So walk me through your organization and how it is that you're working with individuals and well as creating wealth personally for yourself. Yeah, so we have uh, six core businesses that we've kind of grown off each other over over the last you know twelve years. So we have our off-market wholesaling business, which is just a, a company that markets to sellers that want to sell their property off-market. They don't want to list the property. Uh, that's usually a value-add, deferred maintenance uh, property. And then we have a, our real estate brokerage, which works with investors finding buy-and-hold properties, fix-and-flip opportunities on the market, uh, where we have a staff of, team, or staff of brokers that are trained to just source specific type of investments. We have a fix-and-flip team, a buy-and-hold team. And then you know part of that is uh, when you're when you're sourcing these investments, investors need financing. You know, and, and the biggest thing in, in real estate and how you maximize the most amount of your your capital is is leverage, right? As an investor, you want you know if you have a hundred grand, you want to figure out how to grow that in the highest and quickest possible uh, way. And how you do that is structure and having the right lender in place. So we we also own a lending business that will provide short term financing for our investors as they they purchase these investments. And then one thing for us is success is such a key to any investor. And, you know, a lot of new people coming in, they need a lot of handholding. There's a, it's very easy to lose money in real estate. Uh, I personally lost all my money. I, you know, I, I made money from 2006 to 2008, and then I lost it all in 2008 because I had no real assistance. I was doing it on my own. And so our brokerage is actually more, it's a boutique brokerage that specializes in working with investors so we can help them design the properties, figure out where to spend their money. We can get them contract referrals and really assist them through the, the execution to where we know that they're going to make their return and they're going to be long-term investors, not short-term investors. And then we have our other businesses, which are our core investing business, and that's our apartments holding company. Um, and then we have our development company to build new construction and apartments. And then we have our fix and flip company that does about, we were doing about hundred a year. Now we're doing about 50 to 60. So there's a lot of different things going on all at one time. Um, that means a lot of different fires. So really the only way I've been able to get to kind of that level is having a, a really good partners and structure. Uh, you know, my business partner will, you know, we've been partners now 12 years, we're firm believers of too many cooks in the kitchen is a bad thing. So he runs one set of the companies. I run the other set. We, we check in with each other like quarterly or we run, you know, issues by each other. Or if we're going to do comp changes. You know, we kind of float those things by us. But we let each other run each other sides of the business. That's the biggest probably asset that we have in our partnership is we trust each other and we, we, let, uh, we let each other kind of do their things. And then in two of our businesses, we have other partners, too, to help us kind of run those things. So like at our lending business, we found a very good equity partner, Mark, who's been running his own business for 10, 12 years. He helps us kind of with the daily operations on those things. And then we also have, uh, you know, like at our, our off-market company, our actually managing principal is one of our sales guys that have worked with us for 10 years. And we just made him a partner to help us run efficiently. But having the right people in place is by far the most important thing because you can't really expand and grow at the level you want and be efficient unless you have dependable partners. 
So you've got all these businesses going on. Are your investment holdings that you have, like apartment stuff, is that within your those businesses that you're talking about? Yeah, so we own, uh, me and my partner, Will, we have about 250 rental doors in Seattle. And we're probably getting towards, I mean, we're always buyers, but, you know, we're like towards our personal holdings. That, that's about, we're about, you know, I think we're going to be up towards about 300. And then we're probably going to kind of, you know, try to figure out how to, kind of improve our portfolio rather than just keep buying. Um, and then we also do syndication deals. We're now, instead of doing smaller apartments and, you know, that's where me and my partner, we bought, you know, typically our, 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 our mix of units are four to 12 units per site. So to get into those bigger deals now, what we've done is we, you know, we started syndicating in, bringing in a couple core investors where they partner with us on the deals and, you know, they, they bring a lot of capital. We bring our, our skill set, our talents, or we, A, we source the deal, we do the improvements and then stabilize out the portfolio and run the whole thing. But, uh, you know, the only way that we've been able to kind of own that many doors and then start the syndication is really we, we do everything in-house. So we don't really outsource a lot. We, we don't outsource our property management. We don't really outsource our deal flow. We're able to find the better deals ourselves. Um, and so we keep it kind of internalized. That's so interesting because that's how we do it too. And, uh, you know, I see so many parallels on what you've done on that side to what we've done in storage, what you, what you've done in multifamily individuals. So we kept everything internally, which allowed us to see all sorts of different opportunities that we didn't originally see. And a lot of our businesses that we've started are simply drived off our core competencies and needs of the business. We keep it internally. We want to manage, we want to operate. We want to do everything associated with that. We like to bring in and merge into our company even outside different things. So one of the things that we do is we sell insurance, like tenant insurance, things like that, which we're creating co-ops so we can manage run and get 80% of those premiums back. And I think a lot of people need to understand that you getting to the point where you got, it's not like you just woke up and like, oh, I'm going to start a bunch of businesses, right? You can see that trend in how, how you started building and building and you were starting up businesses based upon necessity and opportunity that aligned with your core competencies. I think a lot of people ask me, they're like, geez, how do you do everything? And I'm like, well, first of all, I guess it's planned. It's all centered. And I, and people listening to this, I think that they need to understand that about you, too. First of all, you're a workaholic, a man after my own heart. And two, though, it may seem like you have lots and lots of irons in the in the fire, but it's very organized and it's very controlled. Yeah, and it's really important for me or for us. It's been it's always been a building block. Like we only start another business that complements our existing processes. You know, we've gone outside that model a couple of times, and honestly, we have not done well. Like, I mean, at one point, we started a Bitcoin farm, which was you know, oh, okay, we're gonna rent space, bring in the inventory, collect. Money. That was a bad idea. Lost money because anytime we've gone way too far out the box. There's such a learning curve that, it, you know, it's way less efficient. It's way less profitable. You don't know what you're doing. And so just like you were saying, you started an insurance business to complement kind of this, the units that you're managing uh, for, for clients and yourself. But it, it's always about what's that next little step rather than trying to take over the world. It's like, well, how do we improve this and maximize each deal? Like even when we sell off an investment to a client, it was, hey, we're going to get the wholesale deal. Then we're going to introduce the financing so we can kind of feed the deal that way and then we can get a commission on the backside so we can make base hits all the way through and run a very efficient business rather than just going for that one mega deal and doing instead of doing one deal a month and chasing that big profit deal we can do 20 deals a month and just make a little bit of money and help the client all the way through uh, which has been a way better uh, business for us and way it, we can actually scale that business rather than just going out for that that one that one hit wonder essentially and how many clients do you guys help on annual like or like monthly how many people you got coming in that you're putting into investments you know and what what do you like is there a a, a niche that you guys say listen we do really good in single family housing or are you fairly open like we'll put you into multifamily are you catering it to the client or are they coming to you because of what you do does that make sense Typically, we what we like to do is have a client come in our office, figure out, A, what kind of capital that they're working with, and then B, what's their five and 10-year goals? Because sometimes clients come in with, you know, plan, they're like, oh, hey, I want to flip this high-end home, but, you know, I got 200, or they, they want to flip really luxury homes, but they only have $100,000, which 
that's typically not going to get you into the market. So we got to kind of steer them in a different direction that way. The second thing is they might have zero experience, which again, we're going to try to shift them into like a little bit more, we want to get them into an asset that they can learn on, right? That's not that risky that they can kind of create their own systems at that point. And then uh, the third thing that always come in a lot of times and like, hey, well, we don't want to buy and hold properties right now because we want to use our cash to just flip and create income, which is not a bad idea sometimes. But, you know, depending on what kind of capital you have, you can do both and, and really, you know, because their goal is to become a long term real estate investor. And we can put them in, we can slice and dice up their liquidity to where it's like, no, let's, instead of doing that big flip, let's get you into a smaller flip where you can learn your processes, grow your growth of cash. And then maybe at the same time, what you do is you hedge against that flip and we're going to get you into, you know, leave a little bit of cash in this buy and hold and start building out your portfolio to where you can get something discounted. You know, maybe you're picking it up on a 20% loan to value. You're leaving very little cash in the deal. And then you can get cash flow right away as, you know, you can get cash flow as you're doing your fix and flip to kind of offset some of your costs and also also offset some of your gains. So we're going to steer them more towards looking at the bigger picture. But then again, we do have some clients that come into our market and they're saying, hey, this is what we want. This is what we know. and This is what we buy. And then we'll just go service that client directly. Uh, you know, some of these bigger clients that have been coming to town, they, they tell us what they want. And as a professional, it's my job to go find that for them. So, you know, we would kind of work with all different things. But if someone's brand new to investing, we actually slow them down. We want them to really put together their plan rather than just start, you know, getting into their first thing. Now, that makes a lot of sense. You've built the machine to cater and to service and to basically source deals and help these people get in. But it's you want them a little ways down the road. So they've kind of either thought through that process or have an idea of where they're going. Yeah, and it depends on the market. I would say like three years ago or two years ago when the market was just rapidly appreciating, we were out finding lots of different deals. And now as an investment company, you know, we've kind of slowed it down a little bit too because we want to get our clients good assets. And, you know, as the market stabilizes out, it's the time to pick the right deals. And so, you know, as we're going into kind of that next phase where maybe fix and flip, fix and flip is still a really good way you can make a living. And you can do very well, but you might just not see the same upside as what you saw two years ago. So as we see shifts in the market, we're getting people into more stable stable deals, whether it's uh, getting a buy and hold property, investing in a syndication deal, it could be buying notes. Uh, it's, it's whatever really their, their kind of long-term goal is. Um, but because really as an investor, it's just about getting a return and building your portfolio. So for me, I was getting 20% returns in, in fix and flip. And now getting 20% returns isn't quite as easy. So, because we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, profit or, you know, a lot of just things are getting compressed. It's, you know, profit, interest rates, every kind of margin, margins are getting compressed right now. And so as an investor, if I'm trying to get that 20% return, I might need to put in four different engines now rather than just have one fix and flip business or one cash flow business. And so, you know, anytime the clients go come in into our office, we're kind of showing them, hey, this is what we're doing right now. If we're not doing this actively, we don't sell it. This is something that a lot of people have on their mind. So I, I, I want to dive into this even deeper. A lot of people look at these market cycles and they're trying to figure out where they play, how they play, and how that correlates into their long-term goals. And what I see most people thinking is the market's always wrong at some point in time, right? For them, yeah. it's either too high to get what they're looking for or it's low. They can't get the capital to achieve that, you know. And in this market cycle, as we've seen an obvious change we just hit whatever it was you know this is the last year of the longest you know bull market in the united states history what are you telling people when they come in and they're talking about 10-year goals or more importantly for me forget about the 10-year five-year goals this is a conversation that we have with our listeners and as they're reaching out to us and probably the most that we get is in the next five years what do I do? Do I sit on the sidelines? Do we be active? How, how, how are you helping people approach that? Because it's not cut and dry like it was, at least I feel, and I think others feel too, five years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we got kind of spoiled like three to five years ago. I, I mean, I don't think I'm like some genius. I also was had the right business in the right market, and it was positioned well, and I had that right aggressiveness to, to do well. 
And really what I'm seeing is a fix and flips, we're, we're saying in six to 12 month projects on the fix and flips, that's really what we're selling. Because one thing is it's a really, the rates are projected to stay below four all the way through December. In Seattle, we have seen inventory always stay below two months of the inventory in the market, if not down towards one month supply. So that's always going to be a very healthy market to fix and flip in. So, you know, we're still buying fix and flips. We're sourcing those out. They're good income streams. You're buying, uh, for your, as far as your holdings go, one thing that we did is we went through our, our whole portfolio and said, okay, well, A, we know the interest rates are the best they're ever going to be. We're probably not going to see interest rates sub four for a very, very long time after they start adjusting up. That we had to go through our portfolio and figure out how do we maximize our portfolio. Do we get better financing options to increase the cash flow? What deferred maintenance do we have that are coming up? You know, we should, you know, maybe either refinance up some cash and get our building completely turnkey so we don't have to worry about it for the next five to 10 years down the road. Because as markets change, you don't want to get stuck with a building that can start bleeding you dry with deferred maintenance. So this is the year, if you're going to keep an asset, make sure it's buttoned up, make sure you're locking in the best kind of financing on it, because having a sub four interest rate for a 30 year loan is going to be extremely valuable in 10 years. It's having a better loan and a better interest rate is going to be more valuable than finding a better deal right now. So make sure you kind of lock in those kind of loans, or at least that's what we're doing. And then the other thing is, what in our portfolio do we not plan on keeping for the next five years? Like, if I don't love that building and we don't think, if it's not performing well, we don't like the location, maybe the upside has been maximized through this next cycle. You know, like a lot of single family houses where people come in, they'll come into our, our office and they say, oh, well, we did awesome. We bought these four rentals in Redmond and they have all this equity in them. And, you know, we've made 200 grand in equity per house. My question always is, well, how is that cash flowing to you right now? Oh, well, you know, we're making like three, 400 bucks a month. Okay, well, if you're making three to 400 bucks a month and you have 200 grand in equity there, the time is now to sell that asset and reposition it into a different asset because you can maximize out your equity. You're selling the asset that you bought at a very right time, you know, and in investing, a lot of it comes down to when do you buy it, when do you sell it, right? Mm -hmm. Just like stocks, you buy on the low, you sell on the high. You want to sell those assets off now because those are the, also the ones that the single family houses with a lot of equity, you can turn and put those into better cash flow and usually double your cash flow. And a lot of investors, they get freaked out because they're like, I don't want to part with my assets. It's done so well for me for the last three years, but it really hasn't done that well for you in your pocketbook. It's just, it's just a number on your paper. It's just appreciation. It's just equity. Equity doesn't do anything for you. And so this last year, it doesn't matter if you're buying on a little bit of high side, if you're selling your assets on a high side too, you're just doing a trade at that point. And most of the time you can take that 200 grand in equity, you know, times it by three houses, 600 grand in equity, and you can trade it into one building, which is way more efficient. You get way better cash flow. You can get something that maybe doesn't have any deferred maintenance. And you have an actual tangible asset that's actually worth more. You know, you always want to be, if you're into holdings, my opinion is conforming is always better. You know, being, if your rental portfolio is a 10 unit apartment building in a really good area of Seattle or three rental or, or in the east side even, or three rental properties in the, in the east side that are single family, your, your core assets always going to appreciate and do better for you over a 10 year basis. So, you know, it's really this last year that you can optimize your bank rates and you want to kind of look through your whole portfolio, but don't be afraid to do it either. Like you always want to improve whatever holdings you got going on. And then also right now, if you have any lending power and you can go get a, you know, you can get four to eight loans as an investor, you can get rates four point four and a half to under four on, on the, on these long-term holds. If they're cash flowing out on affordable rents and you can lock in that rate for a 30 year loan, you're going to be kicking yourself in five to 10 years if you don't, if you don't use it now. So optimize out your lending power too. And that's really how you get into it. Just don't go buy your next deal. Make sure you're picking the right deal and then lock in that rate. Realistically, when you're talking about locking in low, do you think that we have probably this whole year to get these things redone? Or are you saying, listen, next three months, you guys really need to be, you know, what are you telling people? Are you comfortable that you have some time to reposition your assets, take some money off the table repos and, and put that, 
that money to work somewhere else that is more efficient? Well, if you're doing a 1031 exchange, what we've seen is median home pricing in King, Snohomish, and Pierce County, and those are the three counties that we really operate in, uh, we do the most amount of volume out of. Those sell during the spring market for about 5 to 8% above the median home price w- close out or above what it will close out at the, the end of the year. So if you, if you are thinking about trading your asset, get them up in the spring. You're going to get paid top dollar in the spring. And so it's really good timing because you can actually get your asset ready, get it up in the spring. By the time it goes pending and sold, you're going to be closing out around July, you know, or even June, May, June, July. You have 90 days to then find your next 1031 exchange or, for, you know, 45 days to identify and then close from there. It's, so you can actually time it perfectly where you're selling your asset in something that pays you five to five percent above the median, and then July slows down where you can pick it up five percent, but usually below the median, and you can lock in that rate. So you you do want to do it now. I I think rates are gonna. I mean, it's not detrimental if you don't do it now, but rates are gonna go up after you know they're projected to end to at three point nine in December. So if you have the whole year to kind of identify that asset and find the right deal. I do think rates are going to go up no matter what happens in the election. You know, I mean, th- that's what happens in election years. The markets kind of start to slow down. You got rates have been really low. You have a really good economy. I mean, honestly, they probably should increase the rates based on how well the economy is doing. And during election year, whether whatever political party you like, that political party is trying to manipulate the economy a little bit. Going into election year, the president wants to get reelected, so he's going to keep rates low. You know, whether a new president gets elected or the same one gets elected, rates are going to go up regardless, depending on who goes in, because they kind of have to at this point. The Fed yeah. says they have to. Yeah. It, the inflation is going to start happening. And so, but you have a 12 month window right now because, you know, Luckily, political parties play the game. We got 12 months to lock in those low rates. And the interesting thing is investors come in and they say, hey, I'm going to wait till after the election year because the market's going to go down. That's probably true. But you're banking on if rates go up a point, that means you need to buy that asset for 13% less than it was worth. In are you or less than it was selling for? So it really comes down to, do you think the market's going to drop 13% in a year? I don't personally think so. And so for, for me, locking in the rate's more important than the purchase price. That makes a lot of sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now, talk about, you've talked a lot about the 30-year. What about on the commercial side? Is it the same and uh, philosophy? But what are you guys putting out when you're doing multifamily? Are you guys looking at 25, 15-year um uh, I mean, how, how long are you seeing you, how long are you able to take that out and how long do you actually like to, cause those two things are, are different. Um, but what kind of structures are you liking on your debt for commercial loans? So Tim, we're, you know, commercial rates are really low right now. You can get a very competitive rate. I think we just got one, like in the low fours locked in. And so what we've done is we went through a whole portfolio. And that is a new learning curve for us because, you know, now we have 250 doors. They're commercial loans, not fixed 30-year loans. They're all always going to balloon out at some point. And so one thing we had to do is go through our portfolio, making sure that not all the loans were ballooning out in the same year. We had to stagger out our loans. So we actually structured most of our commercial loans are 7 to 10 years. Um, they're balloon payment at that point. And so what we've done is we've done 7, 8, and 9, and 10. Because we also want to stagger out certain investments to where we're not all getting, you know, if we have 250 doors all ballooning out in 2029, we might have a bad year in 2029. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it kind of comes down to, okay, well, what's, what's the most affordable rate we can lock in? We're, we're trying to get the longest length in term. You know, if right now I've heard you can get almost a 3% rate on a two year commercial loan right now. We're not doing any two-year loans. We want to get that interest rate locked in as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, so I'd much rather pay 4.1% for a 10-year loan than a three, three point loan or 3% loan for two-year because it, at the end of two years, if rates are up two points, I'm going to be at a 5%, 6% loan. Yep. And so I'd rather just get it locked in now. 
Yeah, we we feel the same way. We anything short term right now, we're basically avoiding. So we're we're pushing out. We'll do like fifteen. We've looked at some twenty five year, but we don't like it that long. We we'd rather do a fifteen fifteen year term, ten year am. Do the twenty fives have a lot of prepays? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's the kicker on those. Yep. We don't. You know, for our loan structures, we don't want any prepaid penalties. We don't want. Um, we're okay with the 15. In fact, we're very comfortable with those, uh, 15 at a four and a half with a 10 year amp. You know, we, that's, that's great for us right now. Um, when we look at though, the actual paper, like for those contracts, we are not, you know, we can negotiate things we just couldn't do six years ago. So we're doing everything from, you know, we may do interest only for so long. And then on top of that, we're doing no prepayment penalties, death penalties. We're getting rid of in certain um, circumstances with partners. When you do those contracts, when you guys are looking at that, because you may have multiple parties involved or maybe just you and your partners, um, what are you willing to sacrifice on the contract for the terms? And so for everybody listening, what I'm talking about here is the contract or the agreement with you and your 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 bank, the terms that they give you, right? You can get really, really good terms, but lots of times that will affect the payments. So the better the terms, yep. they want paid better. And this is kind of a give and take. The easy one that you know you think of right now, non-recourse loans. Um, you can go get a non-recourse loan at a pretty good interest rate, but the the contract is not usually great. Um, they have pretty mm-hmm. big defeasances in there they've got you know you're holding capital all that kind of stuff so where's that balance for you in doing like where do you feel comfortable you know it's for us you know i mean obviously getting on recourse loans is always the way to go yeah. uh, that's not yeah. the easiest thing to do um it, but we don't like having massive prepays uh, i don't think one of our loans we have zero prepays right now um and then we're not going with anything shorter than seven years right now. And then we're not, once you get in, I haven't been able to find anything with no prepays above 10 years or below or above 10 years. So our kind of sweet spot right now is we're locking in around a four. It's about a 4% to four and a quarter. Um, no prepay. Uh, it's about a 10 year note balloon payment. That's kind of like our ideal. We like that, that product because a, Getting a four percent rate, like I guess some people get skewed. They're like, "Oh, well, four percent's good." No, four percent is really good. It's amazing. We're just used to four percent. Mm-hmm. Like four percent is pretty much free, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So it's like, it's, so if we, if we feel like we're locking in a historic, you know, not the last five years interest rate, historical rates have always been substantially higher than four percent. Yes. If we're locking that in for a 10 year period, it's kind of in that balance there, it, it, but we're not also boxing us into where we can't move. Like if all of a sudden we got to sell an asset and we're getting hit with a, you know, five point prepay penalty yeah. that can be detrimental to your overall return. Yep. And so, you know, it, it comes down to, okay, well, you know, if we have an asset that we know, like there's a couple buildings that we probably know we're not going to sell for another 10 to 20 years. Yeah. We just like the location. Uh, they're they're not really development. They're they're more just high cash flow, really good location core areas. Not as much development upside in them. Those we would maybe look at doing on a longer term if we can. But it's like the banks do kind of jam all that stuff down their throat because they also know they, the banks know better than we do on what's going to happen with rates. Mm-hmm. And so when they're throwing out all these little teasers. You really got to go, okay, well, does that fit in my plan right now? And does that go into my 10-year plan? Like when you're getting these these loans locked in, make sure you have an actual plan for your portfolio for 10 years, not just, oh, we're going to get the lowest possible rate right now. Yes. And, uh, and so that's kind of what we've done through. But, yeah, watch out for the teasers because, I mean, they're, they're trying to get you to do certain things for a reason. Like, yeah, a 3% rate for a two-year term, that's awesome. But unless you have enough cash in the bank to just pay that asset off or, you know, be comfortable or, or your, your cash flow is so substantial or, you know, you're going to sell that thing in two years, then offer a longer loan at that point. 
I couldn't agree more with you on that. Financing, I feel like financing can be very tricky at these times of the market, and it makes people uncomfortable because of the nature. We're coming up on an election. We are clearly at the tail end of the cycle, and prices have never been higher. Um, So I feel like financing is your tool to combat against the unknown. But if you're not using it appropriately, then it doesn't matter. It's like using a bow and arrow in a sword fight. And that's how I, and that's how I view um, short-term two-year loans right now. It really is. You're taking a bow and arrow out in the middle of a sword fight, and in two years, you're going to get cut down. And uh, so the fact of the matter is, if you don't know, you just put it out 10 years, and you're buying insurance, right, for performance mm-hmm. and everything else like that. So uh, thanks for elaborating on that, because I think that's really, really important at this term of the cycle. So now we've, I mean, you've just, Dude, like we're gonna we're gonna have you on again, so don't worry. I'm gonna make you come on again because I have so much more to go over with you. Ever. And so you, much. You're by far one of my favorite people just to BS with about the. Uh, <laughs> there, there's so many different things going on, especially in the economy right now. Like just getting to you know, me. I feel like way last time we met, we were gonna be for 20 minutes, late at night, and we ended up chopping up about whatever it was till one in the morning. Exactly. Um, it's something about interest rates and uh, trade wars, and I don't even yeah. think we talked about real estate. It was all economy based. Exactly. Well, it and it, that's the interesting thing that I I think when you look around today, and which brings us to our next point here. I I want it before we end. I want to see where you're going, what your plans are, because you know we've talked about this, and I think a lot of people are at this stage. Whether you're getting into investing because you're at that next that next. Um, point in the cycle, your personal cycle, whether that's financial development and all this other kind of stuff, which is, I think, the key. Everyone got stabilized about four years ago. So you're like, okay, everything's okay. We're all breathing. You know, we're going to survive this. And then they started stacking up cash. Assets started to really increase. Then people are wanting to deploy more. And now businesses, you, me, everybody, we're at this new stage. And that's... Mm -hmm. For me, that's such a signal of the end of the economic cycle. And we talked about this even in our mastermind, where almost everybody in that table was like, we're figuring out where to go next. And I hear that repeatedly. And I think yeah. that shows the signs of the times and and in our economy. And I know that so many people here listening to this podcast are figuring out, how do I take my next step? Where is it? And two, how does that correlate with this this long-term plan, because if I'm on a 10-year journey and the next three years are what I would say the unknown part, which tends to always be the case, but, uh, you know, that's that's where you start to be trying to really figure out, you know, how do I make those next, those next moves because they could jeopardize that 10-year result. And that's why financing, everything you're talking about before and everything we've discussed kind of confirms that. You need to set yourself up so these next three years you're making moves that get you there and don't detriment you. And so my question then is for you, how are you setting yourself? Like, what is, in 10 years, you have these nine companies, what are you trying to get to? What, I mean, you know, besides world domination, which is great, but uh, what are you trying to get to? You know, where are you going, man? I mean, for, uh, you know, for us, like, that's a that, t- 10-year plan is tough for on your businesses. Like, right now, yeah. I know we we are, you know, for our investing portfolio and kind of our general investing, I think we have a very good grasp in that. And typically, our other businesses kind of fall, too. But, you know, one thing that, you know, over the next 5, 10 years, we're definitely opening up more financing arms for investors to try to kind of help them with assisting them in their leverage because we do think, Leverage is key to all these deals uh, a lot of the times. Um, I know right now what we're doing is we're going into every company that we have and we are fine-tuning, cutting the fat, getting things lean, and really, uh, you know, we're shifting from more heavy overhead to more commission-based just to give, you know, giving our, our salespeople a um, – they get higher compensation now. Uh, because we're, we're giving them less assistance and kind of babysitting the deals a little bit less now for them. That's actually been helping quite a bit. You know, like, for example, we've done 50% less off-market deals this year because of just where the market's at, but we've, we're up in sales for gross commissions. Hmm. And, and so 
we're able to do that just by fine tuning. Okay, well, hey, you know, based on this market cycle, how do we make it run the the, the most efficiently? Uh, efficiently. So the last six to twelve months, that's what I've been spending a ton of time. Rather than being like the active investor, is I'm fine tuning our businesses to where we can kind of cut the cost, get them running efficient, and then get back into you know, especially when the market's a little frothy. As the market kind of slows down, our businesses are going to be still ready to go because we've kind of made all our adjustments before the cycle actually happens. And then also, it's going to be a great time for investors just to jump in and start ripping some some good purchases because you know, one thing that I'm personally watching is there's a lot of there was a lot of way too over aggressive investors that got themselves into trouble. And uh, you know, there's a lot of developers out there, a lot of bad sites that just aren't going well. And you know, these lenders might start having to take some of them back. Lenders don't want to take them back. And so we want to be the preferred, uh, you know, we want to be the preferred outlet for them. You're like, oh, hey, you got a half built out site. Well, we can take that out, get it closed out and, and finish it up. And so, you know, we're just looking at different types of, different types of ways to source deals. And a lot of that actually has to do with more bad debt than it does bad assets. We are exactly on the same page as you. There are so many large facilities that have been under that have been developed that we're looking at it. Listen, real estate is real estate. I know the cost basis you're coming in at. I know what market rates are. I know where the ceiling is. And two, I know what the saturation point is, square footage. And we have markets where, well, we have markets already in Texas that the banks are starting to take back assets. But, you know, it's not going to be anything like 2008. But, it, you know, we know that. Which is crazy, though. Banks are taking back assets with uh, unemployment at its best. And the market's good. And they're still taking back big assets, which yep. is a little bizarre. It is. And, and so that's kind of, it, it, you know, and you see this in this top cycle where the economy is doing good, but individual industries and sectors, we're seeing it in some locations with hotels, but in storage where they've overbuilt themselves so much that these invest and these investors, they developed it up. They maybe had these short term loans like you were talking about it, you know, before all of a sudden they're at 50 percent occupant occupancy. They need to fill up. No investor wants to buy it because they're sitting here looking at it going, you're at 50% occupancy and you're going to be for another decade because you have, you know, 2 million square feet more still coming onto the market that hasn't even hit and you can't fill up. And so all of a sudden, the only one sitting there is the bank because nobody wants to touch it. And the economy is doing great and amazing. And we're seeing this in certain areas. Um, And you can imagine if you're not careful, what happens when lending tightens, and the economy turns, you know, in those areas that are completely overbuilt. Now, we have areas that we're investing in and buying in that we don't believe there will be that problem at all and will actually perform very well in a downturn. Um, but some of these areas like where uh, I know Seattle, um, Boise, Portland, Denver, Nashville, you know, mm-hmm. where there's just mass supply in these markets. Yep. Um, you get a downturn on the top of it, you know, in the next five years, that's going to hurt. And there could be some great opportunity. Yeah, the market's going to need executors, right? And if you're looking at, like right now, if people are going sideways in a really good, healthy market, it, they just bought a bad deal and couldn't execute correctly. Or they might have bought a good deal and couldn't execute correctly. And so really refining your systems and having everything ready to go, that's where you know, you're, you're going to do best. Because banks want people that can execute and get rid of things for them. And that's, that's really what I, I, I think we could see some major big financial shifts in the next five years. And, you know, it's, um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for investors all the way around. I love that. I think you're, you're exactly right. Execution is, is absolute key. Okay, man. Well, we have had you on for a long time. I apologize for taking so much time. It's right before Christmas, but thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and where can people get a hold of you, find you, where should they go? You want to find me on social media? It's uh, J Dane D A I N Flips F L I P S. Uh, that's on Instagram, or check out our company website, uh, which is Heaton Daynard H E A T O N D A I N A R D dot com. 
Um, and then we also do, we actually have a bunch of free webinar, uh, kind of, uh, going on next year. We're, we're doing a bunch of free educational things. Just, it's really just more specific topics like on how to execute a construction plan, maybe how to deal with bad tenants, how to get your wholesaling going. So check us out on our website. We put that out. Uh, it will be once a month. We'll be out for just, uh, just free investor tools, help, uh, refine your systems. Awesome. Oh, and if you want to, you can, uh, my email is james at eatondaner.com if you want to shoot me any kind of a question. Awesome. And we will put all of those in the show notes, everybody, so you can uh, find them and cool. reach out. And thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy holidays, man. I hopefully uh, c- c- come out to Newport again. I will. I'll be out shortly. It- it's warm here. So. I know, a lot better than up here. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Cashflow to Freedom. Be sure to subscribe to us for more and feel free to check us out at Cashflow with the number 2freedom.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook. And also, if you could leave us a good review, that would really help us continue to build out our content and our community. Thank you so much.